Well, our, uh, our scripture reading today is Romans 16, and um, because it would be both cruel and unusual for me to ask anybody else to read this list of names, I am going to be the one who reads it today. Actually, uh, I came across a pastor who said that um, if you are new parents looking for a, maybe a name from the Bible, this is probably the list you want to steer clear of for your, for your child. There are some good exceptions in here. Um, but our, uh, our passage is the whole of Romans 16. So I will, uh, I'll begin reading. Actually, let me, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll read the passage first. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centuria. You may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of me and of myself as well. And, and I'm sorry, a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stasis. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong in the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother, Cortus, greet you. Now to him who's able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command, command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, kids, let me give you the three things to listen for, and then I'm going to pray for us. Uh, the first thing that I want you to listen for is man flu. Uh, secondly, uh, holy kiss. And then thirdly, the serpent crusher. 
So man flu, holy kiss, and the serpent crusher. So let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we pray that you would do as you promised to do, which is to use your word to accomplish what you desire in our hearts, in our lives, and in our life as a church. We pray that uh, you would open our eyes uh, to the beauties uh, of what is found in your word, that we would behold the beauty and the glory of our Savior in particular, that we would be drawn to him, that he would be more compelling to us this afternoon, that we might worship him, love him, and follow him, for we have tasted of the love that he has for us. And we pray this all in his name and for his glory. Amen. So one of the terms that, uh, that gets used at our house when uh, any but one in particular member of our house gets sick is the term man sick, right? And so some others may use the term man flu, which is also quite popular. And uh, this term, if you've not heard of it, uh, is developed by the, uh, shall we say, perceived difference uh, by which men and women experience illness, right? Um, and so here's a definition from the, uh, from the Harvard Health blog, so you know this is legit. Uh, they say this, as commonly used, the term man flu could be describing a constitutional character flaw of men who, when felled by a cold or flu, embellish the severity of their symptoms, quickly adopt a helpless, quote, patient role, and rely heavily on others to help them until they recover. I don't know about you, but I feel attacked, right? Um, here's something else that I read this week, though. There have been some studies, actual peer-reviewed studies, uh, that have shown that men may actually experience the effects of the flu in a more severe way than women. Uh, some think it's because uh, male and female immune cells actually respond differently to viruses. So, let's close in prayer, right? <laughs> Um, okay, so the, uh, the actual reason uh, that I brought that up is because I, like many others, recognize that being sick is the worst, okay? And, uh, and one of the things that happens when you're sick and may contribute to some of those symptoms we just described is that you start to realize how much you take for granted being healthy. And so you just get used to feeling good most of the time, and because of that, you stop thinking about your health, and, uh, and, and what can come along with that is, is that you might even stop worrying about things like sleep or your diet or exercise because you, you, you just assume that you are healthy now, you're going to remain healthy, right? What happens, though, is that when you begin to take your health for granted, it's at that moment that you start to lose it, right? And um, I, I think that same thing happens when it comes to the unity of the church. And it's wonderful that this is almost exactly what Mark just prayed for us. That things can, can be going really well. There, there, there are no major conflicts or divisions. And so what you start to assume is that things are just going to continue to be this way. But then something like a, a global pandemic hits. <laughs> or the, the political landscape it, it, it becomes more divided than it's been in, in any of our lifetimes. And then all of a sudden, the, these little moments of, of division start popping up within the church. But it, it actually doesn't have to be something that, that happens outside it either. It could be something that, that happens inside the church and some change that occurs, and it could be a really good thing. Something like a, a new building where maybe we end up in a spot where there are a whole lot of new people coming. 
And they're coming from a whole lot of different backgrounds, backgrounds that are, that are different from the backgrounds represented in the room right now. And, and then what can happen, though, is that these little instances of conflict, these little instances of division can begin to pop up here and there, and all of a sudden, that unity begins to slip away. And we never even saw it coming. It begins to, to kind of pull at the threads of our unity. And so, um, so what Paul's been doing in these final five chapters of Romans is to help us wrestle with the question of what it means to be united in Christ as brothers and sisters. And so what he says over and over again is that he, he's pointing to the source of our unity, which is Jesus himself. And so part of what he's done in these chapters is to say, here's what it looks like when the gospel takes root in a community of people. It begins to show up as this incredible amount of unity, even in the midst of real difference. That this unity that we have in Jesus trumps all of this difference among us. And the way that he wraps up this section, and this is, of course, the wrapping of the letter as a whole, it's not to talk about the potential sources of division, because he's actually, he's already done that a good bit. What he does here, though, is paint this, uh, th- this beautiful real-life picture of their church, a picture of, of the church in Rome. And he does that by getting really personal. And so he lists 26 different people who were a part of the church in Rome. And what you get is this picture of, of 26 people who have very different backgrounds. It's, a, it's this beautiful mosaic of the kind of unity and community that the gospel brings about in a group of people. And so the, the question we've been asking and answering as we've made our way through these chapters is, uh, is how can we embody the gospel in our life together? And so in our final week of this series, we'll see this. We embody the gospel in our life together by maintaining and pursuing our unity in Christ. By maintaining and pursuing our unity in Christ. So I wanna uh, frame our time by asking and answering this question. How can we actively pursue unity? How can we actively pursue it? So we'll answer it in three ways. Here's the first. It's by appreciating the diversity in our unity, by appreciating the diversity in our unity. So uh, what what Paul does in this first section of greetings um, is give a whole lot of different names. And this is sort of like a, uh, what we might call a skim section. And uh, what I mean by that is that like there's this sort of category of literature in the Bible where we would include like genealogies, lists of tribes, lists of countries, building instructions, sacrificial instructions. And they're the sections where if you are making your way through the Bible in a year that you just kind of skim, right? You just sort of plow through them. But here's the deal. Uh, One of the things that that Paul says in in, uh, 2 Timothy is that all scripture is breathed out by God. And it means that Paul, that rather that God himself has specific purposes for us in this section of Romans. And so there are a number of things I think that we can learn from this passage. And one thing that's really clear is that in this first section is that the church's unity includes a whole lot of diversity. And so what you have in this list are people of different races. So you've got Prisca and Aquila who were Jews. You've got Adronicus and Junia, other examples of Jewish people. But then the rest of this list, there are a couple other Jewish families, likely. Uh, but a lot of them are Gentiles. In fact, most of them are Gentiles. So you have all these Jews and you've got all these Gentiles together. You also have a, a lot of diversity in socioeconomic class. So verses 10 and 11. Paul mentions a couple of families here that were probably these uh, wealthy uh, land-owning nobility families. 
So Aristobulus and Narcissus, they're, they're mentioned as uh, being heads of families or heads of estates, so they are people of means. And in fact, uh, some think that Aristobulus was actually the grandson of Herod the Great. Nobody knows that for sure, but that, that it's a, a good guess. Uh, and so you, you have that dynamic in this church, very wealthy people. And then you also have all of these other names that were common slave names. So all of these wealthy people, you have all these household servants as well in the same church. And the other thing about this list is that Paul mentions both men and women. Nine of the 26 names in this list are women. And a number of them have these really prominent roles. The first is Phoebe. If you look back in verse 1, she's mentioned as a servant, or that could also be translated as deaconess of the church at Centuria. And uh, she's actually probably the one who carried this letter from Paul to the church in Rome. And that's why Paul says that he commends her uh, to them. So she would be received with his commendation as the one who's delivering this letter. One other example is Prisca. So she's uh, mentioned in verse three as a fellow worker in Christ Jesus. And then she, along with her husband, are said to have risked their necks for Paul's life. Here's the point of this. All of these people are part of the same church. Jews and Gentiles, slaves, free, landowners, wealthy, poor, men and women, and all of this church, all these people together are worshiping the Lord. They're opening their homes to one another. Paul says they're greeting one another with a holy kiss. And kids, maybe some grown-ups too, you might feel a little uncomfortable when you read that or when I read that, right? Um, but what Paul's saying here is that this was actually a way to express friendship and affection to one another. And it was a significant thing to do. We're right to feel uh, like, wow, that sounds really affectionate and intimate. It was then, and it would be now too. But it's also something that, that, that would uh, be like a, a hug, like an affectionate hug. And the, 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 the point is that you have all of these diverse people sitting with one another in worship, involved in one another's lives, loving one another, greeting one another in such a way that there's these physical acts of affection. And one of the things to notice about this is that that kind of diversity was unheard of in the first century. And here's the deal. That kind of diversity is unheard of in the 21st century as well. This kind of genuine community among, amongst people who are really different in their backgrounds. And so the, the, the question that the world asked then and the question that we ask now is how is that possible? And it's possible because the church's unity then and the church's unity now is not in a shared racial background. It's not in a shared socioeconomic class, nor is it even in a shared gender. The church's unity is found in Jesus himself. And, and did you notice when I read that passage how often Paul uses the phrase in the Lord or in Christ? He says in Christ, he refers to these, uh, these friends as in Christ uh, four different times. He refers to them uh, as being in the Lord five times. The point is just to say this, it's Jesus alone that unites the church. And so the way this works is that when a person trusts Jesus, they are united to him by faith. And what happens instantaneously is that they are united to all other Christians in that moment. And so what happens is what immediately occurs is that you share with all of those other people the most important thing. You have that in common now. 
And so what Mark Dever says is this. He says, when two people share Christ, even if everything else is different, they are closer than even blood ties could ever bring them. They are the family of God. Okay, so what does that mean for us? Well, it means that what unites us is not our socioeconomic status, it's not a shared political perspective. It's not our marital status. It's not our race. It's not our, our zip code, and it's not our level of education. What unites us at Trinity is Jesus Christ himself. And so part of what that means, even as we, uh, as we play the tape forward, is that uh, as we move to a different part of our city where we can draw a, a, a one-mile radius around our new building, and see the spectrum of demographics of our city in a really beautiful way. And Lord willing, our church begins to reflect those demographics in that one mile radius as well. And what can happen as we do that is that what we have in common in Jesus as we trust Jesus together is that, that, that we, what we have in common will far surpass all of that beautiful diversity. We will share in Jesus and be this beautiful countercultural community, even in the midst of that diversity. That's something that Jesus alone can make possible. So that's the first way that, that we actively pursue unity. It's by appreciating the diversity of our unity. Secondly, we actively pursue unity by recognizing the threats to our unity, by recognizing the threats. So he gives this list of greetings, but then he moves on to a, a pretty sober warning about something. What he says is that you have got to be on the lookout for these things that threaten that unity. And he mentions a couple, verse 17. I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doc doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. So what Paul's saying is that there is a kind of person who is trying to sow seeds of discord in the church. And it's not just that he's coming in and trying to stir things up a little bit. What he says is that he's actually creating obstacles to the gospel. And that word for obstacles, when it's used in other places in Romans, is a way to describe what is gonna lead people away from Jesus and into judgment. It is a doctrine contrary to the gospel. It's a false gospel. That's how dangerous this is. They're teaching and they're doing things that contradict the apostles' teaching. And here's how he says it's gonna happen. Look at the second half of verse 18. He says, it's gonna be by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. And so here's the thing about that. It might not seem that bad. It might not seem that dangerous when you're hearing it. Because if it was that obvious, if it was that obviously dangerous, then it wouldn't be tempting. But what Paul says is that it is that tempting because it does come through this smooth talk and flattery and that's why you've gotta be on the lookout for it. And this is actually pretty similar to, uh, to a word of warning that Paul gives in, uh, in 1 Timothy. He says this to Timothy in uh, chapter six. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. What Paul says is that the reason that they're doing this is because they don't 
actually serve Jesus. The one they worship, the one that they serve, is their own appetites, is the way Paul puts it. And that's another way to say that they are false teachers who are out for themselves. That they've got no real love for Jesus, they've got no real love for his people, and so what they're doing is they're entering the church and they're trying through this smooth talk and flattery to lead people away from Jesus. Why? Well, for their own selfish gain. And so here's what I want us to hear. What Paul is saying is that you have got to be on the lookout for those who would use the church for their own selfish gain. Whether that's for political gain, whether that is for financial gain, whether that is for reputational gain. What Paul says is that that is evil. And we've got to see it for what it actually is. And so here's what he says that that we're to do. He says, first of all, that we're to avoid them in verse 17. Have nothing to do with them, he says. Don't let them get a foothold in the church. There is no place for that. This is the kind of thing that will tear a church apart. Secondly, verse 19, he says this. You've got to be discerning. He says, I I, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. In other words, he's saying, don't get sucked in. Don't be naive about what's going on. See this false teaching for what it is, and that's evil. And then look at verse 20. He says this, uh, this phrase that we mentioned earlier in the service. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Okay, what does that mean? Um, this is, as I mentioned earlier, it's an echo of, uh, it's actually a promise that God makes in the midst of the curse in Genesis 3.15. He says this to the serpent in that passage. I will put enmity, which is a conflict. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so I mentioned earlier, we're gonna look at this passage specifically next week. Ultimately here, the promise is that the seed of the woman who is Jesus himself is gonna crush the head of the serpent. That Jesus is the great serpent crusher. And he, does, he did that through his death and resurrection. What Paul says, though, is that though Jesus defeated Satan once and for all, is that now we, who are united to our new king, get to share in that victory. And so Satan is ultimately the one who is trying to destroy the church. He loves to stir up dissension and division and discord. But what God continues to do is to show Satan's defeat through his people who put their trust in Jesus. So Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, Satan suffers defeat each time someone puts their faith in Christ. And so here's what Paul's saying in this whole uh, middle section of the passage. He's saying that you've got to recognize these threats for what they really are. Have eyes to see those threats and at the same time, know, be confident that the victory is yours in Christ, that you will trample underfoot Satan and all of his attempts. That's the second way that we pursue actively uh, this unity. So thirdly and finally, we actively pursue unity by returning to the source of our unity, by returning to the source. So uh, what Paul does is he ends this letter with this beautiful doxology. And what he says in here is that the one who's going to strengthen you the one who's gonna establish you and protect you is God himself. And, and, but what I want you to notice here is how that strengthening happens. So verse 25, he says, now to him who's able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching 
of Jesus Christ. And so what he goes on to describe, that he goes on to describe the gospel in, in multiple ways. But the point is that it is through the preaching of the good news, is that the, the preaching about Jesus that we are gonna be strengthened. And he says that it, it's this good news that, that was hidden for a long time, but that has now been revealed through scripture. He says it's been made known to all nations. And so we could say it this way. The gospel that initially saved you is the gospel that continues to strengthen you now. And, and of course, um, th this applies to, to all parts of, of the Christian life. But uh, what I wanna do is, is remind us that this applies specifically to our unity as a church. And so that the, the, the ultimate hope that we have for maintaining our unity is not something that we do. It really isn't. It's something that God himself does. And the way that God does that is through the gospel. And so here's what that means for us. It means that we have got to keep Jesus and his gospel at the very center of everything that we do as a church. We've gotta keep him, who is the main thing, the main thing. And of course, there are all kinds of ways we do that. We do that through our liturgy every week. We do that in our worship. We do that through our preaching. We do that through our Bible studies. Um, one way, though, that this applies to us is that it has to apply to us individually as well. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus has got to become more attractive. Jesus has got to become more compelling. Jesus has got to become more beautiful to you personally. And so I, I mentioned that uh, this summer when Jeanette and I were on sabbatical, we went to a place called Lady Lodge. And on the, the final day of that retreat, it's usually Sunday morning, so they do a worship service. The uh, speaker that week was a guy named Alan Jacobs, fantastic um, professor, actually. Uh, he was giving the homily that morning, and he said something that, that has stuck with me since then. It's so simple and yet so beautiful. He said at the beginning of his sermon, my whole faith is built around an endless fascination with the person of Jesus Christ. And friends, that is what the Christian life is all about. It is an endless fascination with a savior who has such compassion on, on broken, fallen, sinful people. It is an, an endless fascination with this one who though he could have come in, in this obvious, outwardly glorious way, instead came as an infant. It is an endless fascination with this one who lived most of his life in anonymity and only in the final three years of his life came onto the scene in this very humble way. It's an endless fascination with the one who gave his very life in order that you would receive the forgiveness for your sin that you can't do anything about on your own. The endless fascination with the one who three days later rose from the grave to give you new life. That is the one, he is the one who is our only true source of unity for us. And so let me, uh, let me close with a couple of things. One is this, that, that the way that we embody the gospel in our life together ultimately is to continue to return to Jesus over and over again. To be endlessly fascinated with him and to continue to pursue him in all the ways that we have opportunity to do so together. He is our life. He is all that matters ultimately. And the, the, the second thing that, that, that I'll mention is that, you know, every week, um, we, we don't ever assume that everybody here is a Christian. 
And I know we, we say a lot of things uh, and speaking to those who aren't Christians. And so I want you to know that if you are here and you aren't a Christian, I want you to know that we are so appreciative of you being here. And, um, and we really do want you to, to continue to process questions about, that you might have about the Bible, that you might have about Jesus, that you might have uh, about Christianity generally. And one of the things that, that I really want you to know and that we really want you to know is that the Jesus that we talk about here from this word really does offer himself to you. And he, he doesn't just offer himself to you, he actually calls you to put your faith in him. It's an invitation and a call, and he calls you to, to come to him and to find the rest for your soul that you can't find anywhere else. To come to him and receive the forgiveness of sins that you can't do anything about internally, but that are eating you alive. He calls you to come to him and actually find genuine hope. The kind of hope that actually stands up and can cut through the cynicism that is all over us and all over our world. And so the invitation and the call is this, that if you've never put your faith in Jesus I want you to know you can do that right now. And if you want to talk more about what that might mean, you can grab me, you can grab Andy, or anybody that's listed on the back of the bulletin today. We'd love to talk to you about what that means. But, but he's really the one that we are all about here. And so, okay, um, let me actually close with this. <laughs> this will be my actual conclusion now. Um, I want to close with the way Paul does here and what he says in this doxology. So hear this from Paul. Hear this from the Lord himself. Now to him who's able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we give you thanks uh, for the gift of your word, and we thank you, Lord, that in these prophetic writings, in these apostolic writings, you reveal to us the beauty, the majesty, the glory of your Son, our Savior and King. Lord, we are so grateful for the salvation that we have in him, for the life that we have in him. And Father, I pray that for any friends here that may not know him, that you might do a work in their heart now to see clearly who he is and to be drawn to him. And Father, we pray for our church as a whole, that you, by your grace and by the work of your spirit and your son among us, that we would maintain and pursue this unity for which our Savior has died. And Lord, we know that we can't do that on our own, but that it is a gift that comes from above, and so we ask you that you would do that. We pray this all for your glory and for our good. Amen.